Senior managers are becoming an increasingly endangered species. Anglo Goldashanti, of course, cut senior management jobs about 18 months ago, um, and uh, we've seen a stronger financial performance from the company since then. We've also seen Telcom announce plans to cut senior management jobs there, and of course, Telcom denying that it's going to be race-based, and there's been a huge furore around that, which has died down a bit. But today, we see MTN joining the legion of South African companies, growing number of South African companies looking to cut jobs. And then, as you heard with Tara and Eyewitness News earlier today, that we have had these reports that we could see cuts coming in the mining sector. Now, Reuters reporting quite convincingly, quoting unnamed sources, saying that Lonman planned to cut 5,700 jobs and close between four and six of its 11 shafts. Now, this is massively significant, and the company's not been available for comment. Um, we've tried this afternoon to get hold of the company. Joseph Mutundra says he doesn't know uh, what is going on there either. Um, he hasn't been officially informed of cuts, but it would make sense um, following um, the last results that we saw out of Lonman, where they said they need to address costs, that they would cut something. But remember, uh, it was Susan Shabangu, the mines minister at the beginning of last year, when Anglo-American Platinum went on its big jobs-cutting drive and said it needed to cut jobs in order to be sustainable. There was a huge row and ruction, and then fewer jobs were cut, and then we saw the big mining strike in the first part of this year, which has been devastating across the economy, and it's had a big impact on uh, microlenders, for example. African Bank possibly wouldn't have got itself into this level of trouble. It would have got itself into trouble, but not into the bust status it currently enjoys had there not been a massive mining strike in the first part of this year. Uh, And so that's had a huge impact. And all of these issues come together very nicely. Uh, nicely, uh, maybe a bad choice of uh, phrase, but uh, Kevin Ling's The Missing Piece, Solving South Africa's Economic Puzzle. It's his book which is uh, out at the moment and he's the chief economist at Standlib, of course, where he found the time to write a 220 page book. I, I, I don't know and I'll have to ask him that question but uh, it's a fabulous book and it's really written in true Kevin Ling's style um, and it's nice easy and I hate to use the term Kevin Ling's but it's accessible, and it's not meant as an insult. I hate the word accessible. It's a fabulous book, but you've made it accessible. Good evening to you, Kevin Lings. Thanks, Bruce. Um, yeah, I think that was the intention, um, to try and uh, broaden the readership, if you like. Um, in other words, there tends to be uh, some sort of adversity to get involved in reading about economics. People assume they're not going to understand it. They're not going to uh, follow the arguments. Uh, They assume it's going to be too complex or mathematical or have a whole lot of graphs. So the intention was to try and get rid of all of that um, and make it fairly easy to read and deal with um, the kind of current issues. The business book feature brought to you by Suntum Insurance Good and Proper. Kevin Lings is my guest this evening with our book review feature. The book is called The Missing Piece, Solving South Africa's Economic Puzzle. How long does it take a guy like Kevin Lings who has to write about 5,000 words a day as it is in client notes and all the other bits and pieces that you write to, to pull a book like this together, Kevin? Um, from from start to finish, it took me uh, eight months to write it. But then there's there's quite a long process after that. Um, in terms of doing uh, some of the the uh, indexing and referencing and um, kind of collating the whole thing. So in total, from start to finish, uh, probably about 10 months to finish the whole project. Um, and that uh, it requires quite a lot of late nights, uh, a lot of weekends, and then a little bit of extra leave. 
Oh, a little bit of extra leave. I knew there was a trick in there somewhere. I mean, the big picture and going through the book, I, I think you concur with um, the, the stories we saw, the Goldman Sachs report we saw last year. We also um, saw the long view, of course, which is which was written by Mr. Luntman, uh, J.P. Luntman. Um, basically, South Africa is a much better place economically than it was 20 years ago. You, you concur with that view broadly, I think. Oh, without a doubt, sure. Now, we've made a huge amount of progress. And obviously, in the first 15 years, we made a significant uh, progress. Uh, I would describe it as exceptional and exceeding most people's realistic expectations. Unfortunately, obviously, in the last five years, we've in many areas gone a little bit backwards. Um, And that is a key feature. But even then, taking it in total, uh, the progress in in many core areas has been... um, Yeah, exceptional. And I would say that um, we overachieved uh, in some key aspects. And obviously. Overachieved? Explain yourself. Well, you know, in the book I said that there was, in 19, if we could go back to 94 and said, uh, let's put down what we need to get right in order to make the economy successful, uh, there were four key components in my mind. Uh, The first was that we we had to internationalize the country. I remember it was 94, we'd just come out of sanctions. Uh, we didn't even have an international credit rating. We couldn't really access foreign funding. There were a whole r- range of factors that had prohibited us, us from being part of the global environment. And today we sit as a member of BRICS, G20, uh, credit rating, foreign f- capital flows, uh, our foreign exchange reserves of $50 billion. There are many things you could tick off and say, wow. Uh, internationally, sports-wise, we've done, I think, very Sport. well. Sports. But sports crucial from an economic point of view, maybe from a sentiment point of view. I mean, you make quite a big fuss about the World Cup and, and how important it was that we, we hosted that World Cup. I think it was. It proved to South Africans that we could host such an event. Um, and so I think it's something we can refer to as we look at other investment projects that we need to do. And I think we should be drawing more uh, from that in terms of our ability to, to organize. Um, and I think we're also reaping the benefit now in terms of tourism because obviously tourism is at an all-time record high in South Africa in terms of the money flows into the country. And part of that, I think, is a byproduct of hosting these types of, of events. So to me, we, you know, you can obviously add up the cost of the World Cup and say, well, from a, how much we spent on stadiums, et cetera, it was mm. a very expensive event. But overall, I think it was a very, very worthwhile event. Um, so, so, you know, for me, internationalization, in, uh, getting the country internationalized, I think we did very well. In terms of managing monetary and fiscal policy, Trevor Manuel, I, I think, did a superb job. Tito Moeni, I think, think, did great. So does so Jill Marcus. So I think we've, we can tick off many of those boxes. And to say in 94 that we would have um, got our government debt ultimately down to 27% of GDP, inflation, single digits, interest rate, single digits, you would, ne- you would not have expected that in 94. Um, Lots of people are, are critical of inflation targeting, and that's where government tells the Reserve Bank, look, guys, do what you need to do with interest rates to keep inflation between 3 and 6%, and yeah, there's a bit of flexibility there. Um, but but you, you put that down, you put inflation targeting as, as one of the key building blocks of this uh, economic turnaround that we have seen. Yeah, I think it's it's one of our most successful, if not the most successful, economic policy. And again, I think there's lessons we can learn from that because – 
It's a very simple policy. Everybody can understand it very clearly. I would argue that the vast majority of people in, in, this, in South Africa know, in fact, what the inflation target is. And many people know whether we're inside the target or not. So it's one of those policies which have been communicated uh, extremely well and continue to be communicated well. And I think that communication is part of the policy's success story. And there's also no doubt that getting inflation low and keeping it stable has done exactly the same thing to interest rates. And so the cost of capital, the cost of doing business, the cost of starting a business has come down enormously for this country relative to the 1980s. Obviously, it's way higher than what you'd get in Europe and the U.S. And, and there was at some stage uh, this expectation that we would take, uh, try and take inflation and therefore interest rates even lower. But, but if this is where we end up for a while, I think it's still very acceptable and I would say without a doubt a major success. But you do deal with the issues of inequality and, and, and you look at um, the issues and we go back 30 years to the height of apartheid and money being taken out of social services to fund the uh, creation of G5 cannons uh, courtesy of Arms Corps and the development of the Cheetah aircraft program and fighting civil wars in Angola to try and keep the, the Roy Khafar away from our borders um, and uh, the, the madness that was perpet- that perpetuated the apartheid regime sucked up so much capital and got us into so much debt and set us back so far that, you know, 20 years after the end of apartheid, we're still dealing with the consequences of some pretty daft economic policy making in the dying years of, of apartheid. That's right. Um, if you look at government finances uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, it was becoming shocking. Um, I remember working, writing research. Some of the early research reports I was writing was on a looming debt trap for South Africa. Um, the interest bill was uh, becoming explosive, so the, the the cost simply of the interest of government's debt uh, was starting to approach 20% of the budget and ultimately went a little bit higher than that. Government's debt was up at 50% of GDP and rising. Um, in back in 94, 93, 94, the fiscal deficit was 10% of GDP, numbers we would just not tolerate uh, under current circumstances. And, and a lot of that had to relate, obviously related to the, the weak performance of the economy. There was a recession in the 90s, but a lot of it related to the way in which government chose to spend money. Um, and I guess part of the benefit, if you like, um, of, of uh, the, the democracy was – the ability to systematically dismantle all of that spending. Obviously, it took a huge, huge effort, um, and there's still some legacy effect of it. But I thought what, what was done well was government took much of that money that went into these defense and police services and channeled that money into um, more needy uh, expenditure, including social upliftment, uh, including housing development, water, etc. And as you actually go through the list of... Um, achievements in terms of the provision of social goods, I actually think it's remarkable. At first, he tells you how big the problem was prior to 94, and I think many people underestimate the extent of the backlogs, the socioeconomic backlogs in this country. Um, but if, you, if you're willing to tally up and say, okay, what was achieved, um, I think some, some numbers. Just give you one number. We, electri- we put electricity into an average of 25,000 houses a month for 20 years. Um, I mean, that's truly phenomenal.
And then we ran out of electricity because we were investing at one end of the, the scale but not in the power stations themselves. I mean, it, it's easy to sugarcoat the South African economic story, Kevin, because there have been some remarkable achievements. There are, however, missing bits and pieces. And your book's titled The Missing Piece, Solving South Africa's Economic Puzzle. You, you go through the different pieces of, of, of the South African economic puzzle, of course, and you talk about it in, in some detail. When we get to the missing piece, and it is the breakdown in trust, I think I'm summarizing it correctly between the state and the private sector um, where the private sector there's lots of talk about incorporating the private sector into projects and into all of that the private sector has not covered itself in glory when we look at what uh, the private sector did uh, with the construction of of the big stadiums for example the construction sector uh, really let us down but at the same time we really need to work together a lot more and get a lot more trust going uh, to have some longer term solutions as you put it that's very much at the heart of it. I think that there has been a breakdown of trust um, for, I guess, various reasons and on both sides, if you like, if you want to pick sides. Um, but uh, there's no doubt that you can't be a successful, vibrant economy that's creating employment without uh, private business being a key component of that. And I think all policy documents would ultimately recognize that, and certainly the National Development Plan does just that. Um, but if you look at the way in which uh, you need to support your private sector, that's where there's been a big uh, letdown in South Africa. So we talk about how many houses received electricity, but obviously uh, we just forgot to build some power stations. Yeah. Um, so the way I characterize that is that we focused on access to infrastructure and we ignored bulk infrastructure. So we made sure that more people had access to electricity or access to running water or access to schools, um, access to health care. So we we focused on providing people with this access, but we never kept up the water purification or the infrastructure of the school and the provision of uh, teachers. So, so So to me, we need to go back and say, okay, let's focus on bulk infrastructure. We've allowed the infrastructure to age um, and it's hard for, for business to invest and expand and employ without the appropriate infrastructure. So I'm, I'm specifically focusing on economic infrastructure, things like the railway system, road system, port system, electricity system. And to me, there has to be a massive focus on that. But I think in other areas, we've let business down. We've allowed the, the, the environment to become massively regulated. Uh, I think we're now the 64th most difficult country in the world to start a business. Um, yet other countries are focusing on trying to make it easier and easier. We're making it more and more difficult. Um, the labor legislation, we've no doubt made it difficult over the last 20 years uh, in terms of uh, being able to simply employ people. Um, so I think that on various levels, um, we've 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 we've... <laughs> We've put obstacles in the way for business to operate. And then I think on the other side, business has become comfortable with business as usual. Um, There's no doubt that chief executives receive um, phenomenal remuneration uh, for conducting business as usual. And so the whole entrepreneurship in in the country really needs a revamp. And that, yes, I think business executives need to be well rewarded, but they need to be well rewarded for exceptional um, activities, in other words, for taking risk, for being innovative, dynamic, uh, for taking the business to a, to another level. And I think there are too many executives that simply get rewarded for continuing on the business as it is. And so uh, we've lost that sort of um, 
the sort of animal spirits, if you like, within the business sector to some extent. And so we've become too comfortable. And I think there needs – and so the book also talks about the mm. need for research and development, for innovation, for the use of technology. All of that is true, Kevin, but I think it's, it's – let's sum up with, with at SS Zonke's uh, tweet to me this evening saying, in the eyes of the poor, the trust has been lost not only between government and business, but the cozy relationship between business and government. People perceive there to be this cozy relationship and that to be amplified, of course, by the evidence being given by Cyril Ramaphosa at the Farlam Commission. He has a guy who was in business, who has considerable business interests, who made a crucial phone call on a crucial day that led to – tragic consequences, who's now the deputy president of the ANC and the deputy president of the country. It would be easy for poor people who have been economically still disenfranchised in many respects to to see the the relationship between business and government as too cozy and detrimental to their well-being. Yeah, I think I think it can be perceived that way. I, I look at it slightly differently, but I guess with the, the similar type of conclusion. And that is that um, unemployed people and small business do not at this stage have a seat at the negotiating table. In other words, most of the interaction discussion policy is really between big labor, be it Cosato and or Amco or, or trade unions, be a big business and, and government. And so the marginalized individual, be they unemployed, the youth, um, startup business, smaller business, they'll feel like they're not able to participate. They're not able to negotiate, to put their, their point forward. Um, and many of the obstacles that that young unemployed people find themselves with are not really uh, voiced and, and, and taken seriously. So therefore it feels like um, business is, is, is very close to government. Um, but business on their own would say, well, the labor union is obviously very close to government. So I think it's got to do with are you, do you feel that you part, you're able to participate or do you feel that you're marginalized? And far too, too, many of, or too much of the population feels marginalized. Kevin Ling's The Missing Piece is his book, Solving South Africa's Economic Puzzle. It's fabulous and it's easy to read. And I do suggest that not only do you read it, but you go to the bookshop, you buy it first. Don't shoplift it. You have to buy it. It's part of the economic story. Uh, you buy yourself a copy uh, and read it from cover to cover and then read it again. Uh, it's not complicated, but there's a lot of information in it and uh, it takes a little bit of time to stick. But Kevin Links, nice to have you on this evening. The author and chief economist at Stan Lib Asset Management.